Welcome to the Grace Harbor Church Sermon Podcast. Grace Harbor Church is located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. For more information, visit our website at ghokc.com. Okay, we're going to read from Matthew 2, 1 through 3, which is on page 807 in the Bibles in your seats. Um, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, "Where Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. Would you pray with me? Father, we again are just grateful to be able to gather here this morning and repeat the wondrous story. We pray that as we do this, that our minds would be engaged, our hearts would be engaged, that you would give us ears to hear, a willingness to listen, uh, that we would be able to learn the content of your word, but not just to learn the content of your word, but to live by the authority of your word. And we pray that you would show us how to do that this morning in a text like this. We pray that your spirit would just have free rule and reign among us. And we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we're going to do today is we're going to help our pastors. You guys good with that? Let me tell you how you do that. Our pastors never clock out. Did you know that? Never clock out. There is no timesheet. They don't keep hours. They don't keep track. They, this is kind of one of those things that's all consuming. And so one of the things we want to do, um, and their wives are not in here, so I want you guys to make sure that you look them in the eye and you tell them this. That whenever our pastors get a chance to go away for a little bit of time, like our pastor is going to do this week, what we want them to do is we want them to be fully engaged in that moment and not part of them here in that moment. Make sense? And so one of the ways you get to do that is you can put up with me for the next 30 minutes and you help them do that. Okay? We good with that? That's all we want to do today is just help them and give them a little break. So to do this, to kind of get ready for this text, here's what I want to do. I want you to help me kind of set our minds up to get ready to engage Matthew chapter 2. I need three or four people, not long. It's got to be short. It's got to be brief. Uh, If not, my sermon length will vary depending on how you answer. I need three people just to shout out something about your experience so far within the time that you entered into the doors of the church house. It can be anything from it was the perfect cup of coffee to Greg Boonster hugged me again. It can be anything like that. Um, just I need three or four people. Shout something out. Something you experienced since you walked in here. Singing. singing. Any, any thoughts on the singing? Good, bad, indifferent? Good singing. Good singing. Okay. You're really, a fan, you're really a fan of the piano guy? Yes. You okay. Okay. Gotcha. Who else? Somebody else. Give me something. Babies. Says the dad with a newborn, with a not so newborn, but he's as big as, almost as big as you are, Jacob, right? So they're everywhere, okay? So we kind of got some preference and opinions and thoughts on babies, okay? Somebody else? Welcoming. Welcoming, okay. Says our strangers from Arkansas, not strangers, okay? Good to have you guys with us this morning. Somebody give me one more, something random. Prayer. Prayer. Nice, nice. You trying to get Jesus brownie points or what today? Okay, (laughs) it's great. Okay, so we got four different people, right? Everybody with me? Four different things. Who was right? Jordan Jordan said I was. (laughs) Okay, all of them were right, right? Right, 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 right. Okay, so what's the difference? The difference is each one of them noticed a different thing, right? 
they're experiencing the same thing. They all came to Grace Harbor, right? They're experiencing the same thing, but they experience it from a different, unique perspective. I didn't notice babies. I know they're here. And when you said that, I knew they were here, but my babies are grown. So I don't have to think about where they're at or changing them or listening to them cry. If they cry, just tell them, get out of my face, right? Kind of stuff. So all of this, so we have these different experiences and we have these different kind of backgrounds and things and they bring us in and they help us interpret and think about and focus on the different, we can, we can have this same experience of coming here, right? But we see it from different angles and different perspectives. Whenever you come to scripture, especially the four gospels, what you're reading here is you're reading four different men who've experienced the same thing, but who've experienced from their own certain set of perspectives and experiences. Okay, so what that, what that means is this. That's why Matthew will record some things that John doesn't record, and that's why he'll say things different than Luke says them, because what they're doing is they're recounting their experience in a way to a very specific audience at a very specific time in order to obtain a very specific goal. Okay, so think about this. So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you're reading is you're reading the same narrative. You're reading the story of Jesus' birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, but you're reading this from basically four different points of view. Okay, and these are very important because what that does is it gives us a whole picture of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, right? So we need all four of these gospels. However, when you read them and you study them, it's good to keep in mind that they're trying to uh, obtain a very specific goal with a very specific audience, okay? So let's rehash, rehash some, kind of some of the things that Pastor Nathan's already walked us through in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is kind of presenting this fact that Jesus is the king. We need to understand this word king, right? So Jesus is being presented here as king. He's being presented as king of the Jews. And so Matthew now is recording things in a way that kind of contribute to that overall theme of Jesus being the king. So when you read Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus. Remember, Nathan told us that Jesus means the Lord saves, right? And we remember that he says Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his title, right? Everybody remember that? It means the anointed one. So when we talk about anointing, the Jewish mind would have thought of kings being anointed with oil, being symbolic that they were now rightful heirs to the throne, okay? So when you read Jesus, the saving one, the Lord saves, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is this long-awaited, long-promised king. He's finally here. Okay, when you, And that's why he goes through all this lineage in chapter 1. He ties him to David's throne. He's telling us that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of Jerusalem. This is very important for us to understand because what Matthew wants us to know is he wants us to get that this is not just a redeemer. This is not just a prophet. This is not just a priest. This is the king of the Jews, the long-promised, the long-awaited. And the beautiful thing about this story is that Matthew is saying that just when the Jews thought God had forgot about them, that the promise that they had been given so many years ago has now entered and broken into their reality, and it is now a very real and present thing that the promised king of the Old Testament scriptures that they are familiar with, that they've waited on, that they're beginning to doubt will ever happen. Now he's here. The king that God has promised, the long-awaited Messiah, is finally really present in their world. Okay? Everybody with me? So... Now we get into chapter 2. Chapter 2, if, 
Matthew is introducing the king of the Jews in chapter 1. He's doing so and kind of showing us how he is received by his family, especially Joseph. When you get into chapter 2, what we see is how he's received by the whole world. We're getting outside of the family now. we got three, four, five. How many wise men? Anybody know? Three? We three kings of Orientar, right? We don't know how many, right? Okay? And so what happens is this. We're getting people, we're getting Herod involved, we're getting all of Jerusalem involved, we're getting these kings or wise men or magi from the east, we're getting Egypt involved, we're getting all of these different places involved now because here's what Matthew is telling us. He is not only king of the Jews, he's going to be king of the world. Okay? And so now we're incorporating everybody, and we're not just talking about Jesus being king over everybody. We're talking about how everybody receives this king or doesn't receive this king. Okay, So jump into chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now when we start talking about the wise men, there's a whole bunch of fun discussions here, right? Like, how many are there? Where are they from? Uh, my boys are quarter Persian, so I believe the wise men are from Persia. Okay, I, I, There's actually some pretty solid evidence that they might be, but I don't know. Okay, I'm just guessing here. We say there were three of them. We debate about whether or not when they came. Did they come when he was little? Did they come when he was two? When did they come? All this kind of stuff. And we can talk about it all you want to. We actually used to define our Christmas gifts by the three wise men or Three, right? I'm going to say three because it's been ingrained into me. I don't believe that there were three. I just don't know. Okay? So we would give the boys Christmas gifts based upon the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You with me? Okay. So the gold was the big elaborate gift, right? Something really fancy. It was the big gift that we got parents of the year for, right? And then the frankincense or one of those was a practical gift and one of those was a spiritual gift. I don't remember how it all worked. I really don't care anymore. They're getting IOUs this year, so it doesn't really matter, right? So... um, Sorry, sorry to let the cat out of the bag. Whoops, whoops, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> they should be getting me something, right? Right? Um, three gifts. I want a big one, I want a practical one, and I want a spiritual one. Uh, okay, we digress. The point is this, is that there are so many things we can talk about when it comes to these wise men. The point of the, this that I think Matthew is really trying to make here is the question that they ask. So look what they say when they show up. In verse number two, they say, where is he who has been what? Born king of the Jews. To be born king means you have a rightful shot ownership of the throne. Herod is ruling from the throne of Israel. Herod has usurped that throne. It doesn't belong to him naturally. It was actually given to him by Rome. He is not the rightful king of Israel. And so the wise men show up and they say, hey, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Where is the one who has the rightful authority to be king of Israel? Because here's here's the importance of this question. If the king of Israel has really been born, the long-awaited, long-promised king of Israel is really here, then there ought to be some pomp, some circumstance, some celebration, some excitement, some joy, some worship. They say, for we have come to worship him. If you show up in Jerusalem and the king of Jerusalem has recently been born, that should be the news on the tip of every tongue in Jerusalem. Everybody should be talking about this. This is a huge deal. So you guys remember when your first kid was born? Nope. Some of you are like, nope, I don't. Um, I, I was going to ask the Bradleys, but I didn't want to put them on the spot. Um, you figure when the first one was born, when Isaiah was born, um, I remember carrying him down to the nursery. And, you know, I'm in the nursery with the nurses, and they're putting him in the thingy. I don't know what it is. I was really there, though. I promise. Um, 
And so uh, my, my family and my in-laws and everybody are out the window, you know, the little steel glass window, and they're pounding on the window telling me to get out of the way. And I'm usually a pretty go-along, get-along kind of guy. But this is my firstborn. And I was just thinking to myself, they can see him later. This is my dude, and I'm not moving, right? I mean, this changed me. The birth of this kid, Micah was born. I wasn't even there. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay. I was there. But the birth, I mean, this ought to change something, right? And if this is the king of Israel and he's really the one who deserves the throne, then there ought to be excitement here. This ought to be headlining everything that's happening in Jerusalem. But look at verse number three. When Herod the king heard this, he was what? He was troubled. Now notice the next line. And all Jerusalem with him. They weren't excited. They weren't even aware. As a matter of fact, this is what makes this story so interesting. Jesus comes to his own. He's born in Jerusalem. Everybody should be excited excited and worshiping the newly born king. But the reality is they're not even aware. They're made aware of it by foreigners. Might even be pagans. I mean, I think it's beautiful that God leads them there by a star. Eastern cultures of this day study the stars really heavily, probably even worship the stars. And God, in his infinite wisdom and grace, spoke to them in a language that they understood. And there was something so radically unique about this star that they followed him, followed a long distance, traveling hard and far to follow and worship this king with very little to go on. Maybe they knew the scriptures. Maybe they didn't know the scriptures. Maybe all they had was a star and they left their home, followed it to worship this king who wasn't even technically their king and the people whom Jesus has come to, they are, could care less. I mean, they're, they're at least, at the very least, they're not aware. And at the very worst, they're unconcerned altogether. So all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. Now follow on with me. And he assembles, Herod assembles in verse four, all the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquires of them where the Christ would be born. And so notice that the religious leaders of Israel, they don't have to go search for this. They know the answer to the question where the Christ would be born. They quote Micah chapter 5 verse 2. By the way, you see that? Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Micah told us where Christ would be born. And Isaiah told us how Jesus would be born of a virgin. And if you didn't name your kids as well as I did, then Okay, what are we going to do, right? I didn't know all this when I was naming our kids. Actually, I just agreed with whatever my wife told me to name them. So, um, so you know, hey, easy, go along, get along. Um, so the, the, the religious leaders of this day, they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's not like they don't know. It's not like that they're not aware. And so what Matthew is doing here, this is really important. Matthew is showing us that these people from far east have now come to worship the king of Jerusalem when Jerusalem won't even pay attention to his existence. You remember the passage in John chapter 1 where it says he came to his own and his own received him not? That's what Matthew's telling us. That Jerusalem is being made aware of their newborn king by foreigners, by Gentiles. And Matthew is being very intentional here in telling us this. That the creator God wrapped himself in human flesh. Redeeming king of Israel is brought nearer than ever before. And his own seem as though they could care less. The very people he came to be king over are unmoved by his arrival. While foreigners are traveling far and hard to worship the king. Matthew is showing us that the king is here but his people don't seem to care. That the long-awaited promised king is finally, truly, really here and nobody cares. 
especially his own. He is setting us up to understand, and I need, you to, I need you to understand this because this is going to happen throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew is setting us to understand from an early point in the life of Jesus that Jesus will come to his own and his own will reject him. But it gets worse. Somebody read, um, just read out loud, verses 16 through 18. You can even mispronounce some words if you want. Somebody read it out loud. 16 through 18. Yes, sir. This is hard to kind of wrap our minds around. So the story kind of goes, and you guys are familiar with it enough, but I think this is important because Matthew is setting us up to understand that not only is Jesus rejected by his own, but he is actually violently opposed by the kingdoms of this world. Okay, so just sit with me for just a minute. Herod is kind of the story of this show. So the wise men, Herod asked the wise men to tell him where he was born. When he was born, he wants to know so that he can go worship the king of the Jews, right? We all know. The wise men probably didn't know, but we know that he just wanted to kill him. So he doesn't find him. They sneak out because they're warned by God to leave a different direction. And so now what we have is Herod, who his, his wickedness is well documented in plenty of sources beside the scripture, Okay. Herod is a bloodthirsty ruler. I mean, he is just, he's killed the whole Sanhedrin at one point. He kills his own sons at another point. I mean, this dude is just wicked. He has a, um, just a rage and jealousy over his own throne and would do anything to protect it. Anything, even so far as to kill newborns. And that's what he does here. He orders that children two and under, all the males two and under, that in, in Bethlehem that were born around the time of Jesus, right, two and under, okay, that they would be slaughtered. Now, this is hard for me to wrap my mind around, okay? I don't know why it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. There is just that much evil and wickedness in this world today, right? Everybody with me? I mean, it just, but it still seems like it's extreme, doesn't it? I mean, who would do that to babies, I mean, I don't like to hold them because they're too little and breakable, but I still like them, right? I mean, who would do this? What kind of, I mean, Herod is probably 70 years old. Jesus is probably at least two or under. What kind of threat is a two-year-old to a 70-year-old? I don't understand the logic here, but I do understand the wickedness that exists in his heart. He's bloodthirsty. He's cruel. And Matthew is setting us up to understand this, that even at the earliest age, there is a very real evil in this world that would rather not have Jesus as her king. And I want you to pay very close attention to this because sometimes I think we miss this in all the talk of God's sovereignty. How many of you believe in God's sovereignty? Do this, even if you don't know what I'm talking about. Just shake your head, raise your hand. We believe in the sovereignty of God. But here's what that doesn't mean. When we believe and cling to the sovereignty of God, it does not mean that his is the only will that is ever accomplished on this earth, right? We pray our Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It implies that there are other wills done on earth besides his, right? 
Think about this. There is this evil, and the scriptures remind us of this over and over and over again, that we live in a world that isn't just dismissive and unconcerned about Jesus, but we actually live in a world that is violently opposed to Jesus' rule and reign. I mean, uh, I bump that to the next. Look at this. I want to show you something. There's some scriptures here. This, the first three in John, this is all Jesus talking about the ruler of this world, the ruler of this world, the ruler of this world. Do you know who he's referring to? He's referring to Satan. He says the God of this age, Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says that we live in this e- present evil age in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. John will tell us later on that the whole world, this physical world, lies in the power of the evil one. Does that not mean God is sovereign? No, God's still sovereign. Okay, hold with me for just a second. What it means is this, is that his sovereignty now exists in a world that is violently opposed to him. And so now this is, there is this kind of coexistence in the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world that are violently, and they will stop at nothing to destroy him. This isn't the first time they try to kill Jesus, right? This isn't the first time they tried to out him. It won't be the last time they try to out him. The reality is that Jesus, the new king, is here, but he is breaking into this world in such a way that it doesn't obliterate the kingdoms of this world yet. It's coming still, but not yet. The Jews saw two ages, the present one and the coming one, the coming kingdom. And when they thought that when the kingdom got here, the present age would end and none of that would be anymore. And what happened is Jesus entered in and he brought his kingdom and it didn't obliterate the other things, other kingdoms of this world. It just came in and it coexisted. And so what Jesus did, rather than throwing out all the enemies and all the wickedness and all the evil, which, listen, man, the world has no answer for the evil. The world is trying to figure out why we are so wicked and they have no answer. Do you know scripture has an answer? Because there is a ruler in this world who is violently opposed to the rule and the reign of God. And Matthew is setting us up to understand, hey, there is going to be this conflict and it is going to happen on every page of Matthew's gospel between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our Christ. And listen, if you don't know this, it is a real battle that exists every day of your life and unfolds in the drama of your day-to-day routine that there is a king who is wanting to rule you in love and grace and there is a kingdom of this world that is violently opposed to all that he stands for. You ever felt like you were in a battle? You ever felt like this was real war? It is real war. It's not pretend. It's not make-believe. It's not spiritualized. There are real evil forces at work, and Jesus' kingdom now exists inside of that, and he submitted himself and subjected himself even to the horrors of this world so that he might not just redeem all of creation, but so that he might redeem our hearts. So Jesus is now rejected of his own, He's now born into this kingdom of this world that is violently opposed to him. But behind all of these scenes, and we don't have time to really look at it, look at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to who? To Joseph. This is, this is crazy. In chapter 1, God appears to Joseph in a dream. In chapter 2, he appears to him three more times in a dream. And so you've got the Jews rejecting Jesus. You've got Herod trying to kill Jesus. And behind the scenes in this quiet, humble obedience is just a dad who's doing whatever God tells him to do. Moment by moment, day by day, 
you got this guy in the background that we really don't know much about. All we know about Joseph is that whatever God tells him to do, he does it. God tells him to name his, to take Mary as his wife. He does it. God tells him to name his son Jesus. He does it. God tells him to go to Bethlehem. He does it. God tells him, hey, get out of Bethlehem. Herod's trying to kill you. He does it. God tells him to leave Egypt. He does it. God tells him, don't go back to Bethlehem. Go to Nazareth. He does it. Everything that God tells him to do. And it's progressive. He doesn't give it to him all at once. It's like a, it's a moment by moment, day by day. Hey, here's this piece. And Joseph obeys it. Here's this piece. And Joseph obeys it. Here's this piece. And Joseph obeys it. And so what you have in this background, and this is beautiful because this is important to the whole story and narrative of Matthew is that you've got the Jewish people rejecting him. You've got the Kings opposing him. And then you've got just a few. And unfortunately it's just a few. But you've got a few people who are going to learn to trust him, to take him at his word, to obey him, to arrange their entire lives underneath his rule and his reign. And these few, though they're not many, are going to literally change the world. Here's what's going to happen in the book of Matthew. Matthew is going to try over and over and over again to get us to understand that Jesus is the redeeming king. That he is, his rule and his reign is very active and present. And Matthew's going to try to orient the hearts of his readers around this ideal that Jesus deserves to be the rightful authority of your life. Okay? And I don't think that this is just a message for somebody 2,000 years ago. Matter of fact, I think this is so incredibly relevant and important for us, even in this moment, to have our hearts and our minds oriented around the reality that Jesus Christ is king, that his rule and his reign are real. It's better. It's worth trusting him and submitting to him, to have our faith understood as uh, as as. Faith is the same thing as obedience. That if we say that we believe him, it means that we obey him. And to say that we, if we say that we have faith without obedience, then we've misunderstood what real faith is. It is only in recent times and cultures that we have under, ever understood faith as something that only engaged the mind and never engaged the life. Faith was always something synonymous with action and obedience. We live in a world now that says you can trust Jesus and not obey him. And I just want to be blunt and upfront. And I don't want to be real, okay? The Bible knows nothing of such. The Bible knows nothing of claiming Jesus Christ as my redeemer and not understanding him as my king. He is the redeeming king. And there is this push right now, and I'm so grateful for this. I'm kind of cynical at this point in my life. I'm a little jaded. And if you hear me say some things, it's because I am, and I've just got enough under my belt that has made me that way, and Jesus is working on my heart. I got it right. Um, And so I'm critical of a lot of things, but there's something good that is happening in Western Christianity right now. And it's this, there's this push to re-understand and refocus our hearts on the fact that ours is not just a redeemer, he is a redeeming king. And my life is only at its best when I submit to his rule and his authority. Listen, we live in a world right now that is opposed to any outside external authority. We don't like it. We don't like anybody telling us what to do because we have our rights. 
And that's what we live for as Americans, right? But what we understand, and Matthew is going to set this up page after page in this narrative of Jesus' life. He's going to set this up that Jesus is, and your life is only as it should be and could be, in flourishing and meaning and purpose and significance so long as you submit to the rule and the reign of God. For far too long, we've sold Jesus only as a ticket to heaven. And I want to tell you this morning that eternal life, as much as it has to do with the quantity is much more about the quality of your life. It is a certain kind of life. It is living with a loyalty and allegiance to Jesus Christ because you trust him, because you believe him. It is to believe, it is to put into practice what you say you believe about his words and his teaching and his character, that I actually live under his rule, that I believe that his way is better, that I bow my heart in submission to that way, and that I organize my whole life so as to... Listen, what is the last time you've turned over a stone in your life to obey Jesus? Like to do what he says. See, here's what we've done for far too long. We've talked about following Jesus only as a set of beliefs and never a set of practices. We've talked about it as, as in a mental ascent rather than in obedience. And what Matthew's going to do is he's going to push us into this, that to follow Jesus, to have faith in Jesus, means that you do what Jesus says. It has to mean that. Matthew is going to set Jesus up on his throne, and what that has to do is that has to reorient our hearts around this concept that, hey, if to follow Jesus means that we are now living with a sense of loyalty and allegiance to Christ based upon a deep sense of trust in his character. There's such a need for us to return to this understanding that our redeeming king is just as much a ruling king and that my life is only healthy as I submit to his rule and reign in the day-to-day, moment-by-moment details of it. And you say, well, preacher, sorry, preacher, I, I do what Jesus says. Have you ever noticed this? That it's easy to do what Jesus says when you already agree with what Jesus says. So let's just do something, okay? Let's call it what it is. When you obey Jesus and what he says, when it already lines up with what you say or what you already believe, that's really not obedience. That's just you do in life, right? Okay, so if Jesus told me not to speed, that's when I got a problem with Jesus. And that's when I have to choose to obey I saw a Porsche yesterday that had four doors. You know what's good about a Porsche with four doors? I can carry my whole family. But I can carry my whole family and go fast. Like really, really fast. Like faster than the Suburban out here. I want to go fast. And sometimes the Lord convicts me about it. There's no book, chapter, and verse about speeding. And if you're really holier than me and you got all it figured out about driving and all that good stuff, praise God, we don't have any space here for you. I'm just kidding, we do. Um, I just, this is a big deal for me. So this, the last thing that Lord's ever going to redeem on me is my right foot. It's ever going to be the last thing, I promise you. Just the way it's going to be. And so what happens is, if, if it's already lining up, yes, it's obedience, but it's really comfortable obedience. But what is it that Jesus asked me to do that I'm uncomfortable with? or that I don't understand, or hold on, that I don't even agree with. Do you know that Jesus can ask you to do things that you don't agree with? And that's fine. Because what obedience is, is this, is it means I don't have to agree with him, I trust him. I don't have to understand him, I trust him. I may not have all the pieces, 
I trust him. And because he is God and I am not, I will do what he says. Listen, if we could have all the pieces that he has, we would do everything he asks us to do without question. This is obedience. And to understand Jesus Christ as king, which is what Matthew is attempting to do, calls us to this place where we must submit every last area of our lives to his rule. Here's a quote by George MacDonald. Will you bump that one for me, Aiden? Um, this is a pretty interesting quote. Instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said do it. Or once abstain because he said don't do it. It's simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you do not do anything he tells you to do. It almost feels harsh, doesn't it? It almost feels abrasive. Like that's kind of brow beating, right? What if we just have such a problem with authority that we've forgotten that Jesus really is an authority? And he really does call us to submit to this. Now listen to me, okay? Submitting to him is in your life's best interest. I mean, it's, this is the catch. Your life could never be better than when you live in obedience to him. I, 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 listen, I told you about my right foot. I don't ever have to worry about telling this one not to speed. That's another part the Lord's working on me in, okay? This one will. And I, talk, I was having this conversation with him the other day. Speeding tickets are not fun. Now, listen, hadn't fixed my foot yet, okay? But what I'm doing is I'm telling him something. He has the choice to do whatever he wants. I'm not riding in the car with him every day. I don't know that I really want to ride in the car with him anyway. I'd prefer not to know what it's like. Um, but I know that he has his own right to choose whether he obeys or not. The reality is if he obeys, it's good for him. If he doesn't obey, then he has to deal with those consequences. Here's the reality of following Jesus. It is never, it will never leave you worse. It will only leave you better. So how do we put feet and hands to this? So Matthew is writing this narrative and he wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is king and that some will reject him and the kingdoms of this world will violently oppose him, but there will be a few who will follow him. How do we put hands and feet? Because he doesn't tell us to do anything. So what do we do? There's probably all kinds of ways we could talk about applying this. Maybe you'll do that in your community groups, and hopefully so. Here's kind of one of the things that I'm drawn to. I'm just drawn to the fact that the wise men followed a star. Not the scriptures, not a news report, not an email, not a text. They followed a star. Joseph followed and obeyed a dream. A dream. Listen to me. Do you understand this? I, anybody, anybody trust your dreams enough to believe that it's the voice of God? I've dreamed, I've dreamed I've showed up to sermons late, funerals late. I've dreamed I was sorting mail because I worked in a mail room once. Um, I've dreamed I was beating my children. <laughs> I've dreamed, I meant stars. I spent 10 minutes the other night trying to figure out if that was a star, if that was a plane. 
So I'm like, okay, well, how do we do this? And I, there's a lot of nuance here, but here's what I know. We live in a world that pressures us from every side, and we are bombarded with the world's systems and values and things that have to be deconstructed and put away and slaughtered and murdered to be able to hear the voice of God. I know that hearing and knowing the voice of God is a necessity if we want to obey the voice of God. Okay? Jesus said this, my sheep hear me and they know my voice. Shepherds could walk up to a sheep pen filled with everybody else's sheep and they could speak a word or make a sound and their sheep would come out from amongst all of the other sheep and follow them. So Jesus meant, he said, my sheep know the distinction of my voice. They hear it. They're familiar with it and they follow me. My dad used to sit up in the sound booth that was kind of up raised in the back of the church building when we would go to church and the kids would kind of get restless and my dad would snap his fingers and he had these big fat chunky fingers and, and it was loud. And even the serve, even the pastor would kind of pause for a second. And every kid heard this, right? When my dad would snap when we were misbehaving when they were misbehaving and he would snap. And so every kid was familiar, but I was more familiar. I, they all kind of straightened up, but I knew that if I didn't straighten up, I was going to be offered on the altar as a sacrifice. Okay. It spoke a different language to me because I was familiar with his snap, right? So how do you and I, as the people of God become so familiar with the voice of God that we can distinguish it between all of the other voices that are clamoring for our attention today. Like, I just want to know, right? How do I know? How would I know if God spoke to me in this moment? How would I know that it's not just my own will or the will of everybody else around me? So listen, here's where I want to put feet to this. I want to give you a couple of things that you can do. These are not fail-proof, but they are practices that you cannot afford to live without. We cannot assume live based on the assumption that we know the will of God and that his ways are our ways. We must be ever attentive to his will and seeking to know it and to learn it and to be familiar with it. So here's what we do. Here's number one, be willing. In the book of Matthew, you're going to find this phrase repeated over and over again. He that has ears, let him hear. He that has ears, let him hear. What that means is this, is the reality is some people really don't want to hear what Jesus has to say. They don't. And listen, you may not every time. I don't always want to hear what he has to say. So what we do is we say this. Father, if there is anything in me that is against hearing you wherever you will lead, then strip that away and slaughter it from my heart because I want to hear you. So even if I'm not willing, I need to seek to be willing. And I need to ask him to make me willing. Because I tell you this, I promise you this, that if you don't want to hear him, you won't hear him. He won't force you. If you don't want to listen, he won't make you listen. The reality is that those, listen, light shown to Herod, light shown to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Jerusalem and Joseph and the Magi and only the ones who wanted to hear and listen were the ones who heard and listened. There is a responsibility on us to listen. So there has to be a willingness. Get familiar. You know how you get familiar? Spend time in this word. Did you know there's not a single person in this room who can't feed on this book? There were times in our history, in the history of humanity, that we could, there were people who couldn't read or write. And you know what they would do around this? They would gather every day to listen to somebody who could. They would memorize it. 
They would hear it because what they knew was this. I need to be familiar with his voice. I need to know it so well that I can recognize the counterfeits. And you and I who can read and write and the average American have seven copies of this in their home. And Jordan and myself have raised this average by 30 because we have enough Bibles for the world. Um, The reality is that all of you have one and you can be self-feeders on this book. And if you're not, man, hey, guess what? Do it now. You say, I don't know how. Ask me. I'll help you. I can't do a lot, but I can definitely help you feed on this book. So get familiar. And then the last thing is this. Learn together. it, It took me till later in life to realize this. That other people's understanding of Scripture and the voice of God is so important for my understanding of Scripture and the voice of God. I have spent countless hours with my nose in this book. And then I've spent just a few minutes in the presence of others who have. And they've shared input and perspective that I didn't have. And it opened new worlds of understanding to me that I would not have had if it weren't for other people. So get in community. Listen to the voice of God together. And lean on people. They may not always be right. It's okay. I'm not with them because they're always right. I'm with them because I need perspectives that are other than my own. So here you go. Ready? The king of heaven has entered into this world. Many will reject him. The kingdoms of this world will violently oppose him. But there will be a few who will listen to his voice and do what he says. I pray that that would be you. And I pray that that would be me. I want to end on this note from the book of Revelation. You got that one for me? Because there are other kingdoms in this world right now. And because the evil hasn't been put to death yet. I want to leave you on this note. There is a day coming when the evil will be put to death. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, these kingdoms have become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. They have bowed. They have been conquered. They will rule no more. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that for all of the brokenness that there is in this world, for all of the evil and the violence and the opposition to you, for all of the struggle and confusion in trying to understand your voice, for all that reject you and refuse you, and for all of us who are stumbling our way into obeying you, for all of that you are still good. In spite of all of this, you still rule and reign. In spite of all of this, obeying you is still our our best. In spite of all of this, you will make all things new. Father, we long for the day when the kingdoms of this world will become your kingdoms. They will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Begin that even now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing, and as we do, you guys can come and grab the elements for communion.